The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Book of Serenity, case 67. The flower ornament scripture's wisdom, the pointer. One atom contains myriad forms. One thought includes a billion worlds. What about a powerful person who wears the sky on their head and stands on the ground? A spiritually sharp person who knows the tale when the head is spoken of. Don't they turn their back on their own spirit and bury away the family treasure? The main case. The flower ornament scripture says, I now see all sentient beings everywhere, fully possess the wisdom and virtues of the enlightened ones. But because of false conceptions and attachments, they do not realize this. Homsher's verse. Sky covers, earth bears, making a mess, making a clump, pervading the universe without bound, breaking down subatomic particles with no inside. Getting to the end of the mysterious subtlety, who distinguishes turning towards and away? Buddhas and ancestors come to pay the debt for what they said. Ask old teacher Wang of Nanquan. Each person just eats one stalk of vegetable. So, intrepid travelers. Yesterday we were in the belly of the beast. Today I think we're in the womb of the Buddha. Belly of the beast, either you get integrated into that beast or you get shit out. (laughs) We're looking for birth. Each year we've done Rahatsu, and um, in the early years where the Sangha was scant and so was everything else, we used to just, people would just come to Rahatsu sometimes without a lot of experience or much experience at all. And we had one Rahatsu where in the afternoon on Saturday, somebody started giggling and another person started giggling. When a person cries, that tends to be galvanizing and settling because it feels genuine and like they're touching something real. Giggling is being spaced out. So it kind of got infected, and so Dido said, okay, he lifted the silence. Remember that? Oh, my God. (laughs) So he lifted the silence at supper. Right? Everybody was... And then we went back into the zendo. Yeah. It was a long evening. <laughs> so we never did that again. So we started being, trying to be a little bit more careful about just to make sure that folks are ready to come to Rahatsu. And it's hard when somebody hasn't done it because they want to come, right? They're sincere. It's like just coming to a regular session. The person, the senior is interviewing them and is trying to describe and what's going to be happening and 
person says, yes, yes, that's what I want. But the senior knows they don't actually know. Right? And so the senior is trying to discern based on experience and, and whatever they can draw upon so that it's a good experience. That's what it's really about. So that the student is ready to take that up, to be challenged by this. And it's a positive experience. So we've learned along the way. One atom contains myriad forms. One thought includes a billion worlds. How is this? You know, it's interesting that that sense of the whole universe or the multitude being contained in a tiny infinitesimal particle is not unique to Buddhism. So it's as though there is that truth that somehow is sensed or imagined or pined for. But what's important about the Buddha Dharma is it's all coming from experience. It's coming from direct experience. These are reports. So even though it's used in poetic form, it's a, it's a report of what is seen, of what is discovered directly. It's not, it's not poetry. It's not just poetry. So when the true nature, our real nature, is liberated, when we see through that, then we know that each and everything has one nature, Avalokiteshvara, realizing mind. All things have one nature. And so when we speak about unity and oneness, sameness, these are words that are, in a way, distant approximations. <laughs> They're kind of the best we've got, given the nature of language. Because to speak of oneness and unity or merging all suggests that there are things that are actually separate and somehow we get them all mashed in together and they become one thing. It's not like that. And so form is emptiness, emptiness is form. We chant that every day. Why? Why that sutra? Why that teaching? In the Prajnaparamita sutras, there's many, many passages where it, it talks about somebody who, who does all kinds of dana and benefiting the sangha, building monasteries, all of these things that would develop, accumulate huge amounts of merit. And the Buddha says, does a person doing all of these things accumulate merit? And Subhuti says, absolutely, tremendous amount of merit. And the Buddha will say, someone who for one instant turns towards Prajnaparamita, generates much, much more merit. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. It's the truth that's never been hidden, and it is the liberation of Buddha Dharma, was the liberation of the Buddha. And in the pointer, when it talks about the person who wears a sky on their head, standing on the ground, a spiritually sharp person, don't they turn their back on their own spirit and bury away the family treasure? We can get in our mind entangled in anything. And so there are many teachings and practices that point to when a person realizes emptiness, not a single thing, no characteristic, no quality, no place, no location, and then they attach to that. 
Well, of course, they're not attaching to emptiness because that's, that's impossible. We attach to the idea. And so that direct experience instantly, if unchecked, becomes objectified, becomes an idea. And so that has to be experienced. And this is not just with emptiness, but everything. In touching it, in, in experiencing something, then to immediately release. Release. And we don't want to do that, right? We want to hold on to that. We want to preserve that. And he says, we bury our spirit, bury away the family treasure. Form is emptiness, frees us from the entanglements of people and places and situations and emotions, sensations, tyrannies, all the things we get entangled in. To be attached to things is illusion, we chant, because there is no thing that we can grab onto and attach to. That is the machination of the mind. Emptiness is form prevents us from getting caught on the top of the mountain or deep in a cave, isolated, holding on to that family treasure. And so practice is an ongoing, and training is an ongoing encountering the Dharma, reflecting, practicing, realizing, and then releasing until ultimately we don't have to release because we realize that itself is actually part of the illusion. And so here, drawing from the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra, I now see all sentient beings everywhere fully possess the wisdom and virtues of the enlightened ones. But because of false conceptions and attachments, they don't realize it. What's interesting about this koan is, how is it a koan? It's basically saying it. It's just laying it out there. And so for the student, they have to find their way in. What is that? What is this? Is there a question here? Is there something that is to be directly encountered? There is. You know, the Buddha way doesn't really begin in suffering. For many of us, we think of our path as beginning in the recognition of, of dukkha before we know the word. Something's not working. Something's not right. We try, we try, we try. To be disenchanted with samsara within Buddhism is considered a really essential part of the path, right? Because as long as we're enchanted, back we go. But it really, even though we, we may think of that as where our path begins, the Buddha way really begins in, in prajna, in wisdom. I mean, think about it. The Buddha was practicing, doing all these ascetic practices and studying with these various teachers and then sitting in a place, as he said, that was, was good for striving. And in the moment when he came to realization, in a sense, then the path began to come into being. You know, it's like when we're just tootling along in our unexamined lives, and we begin seeking, and we find the Dharma, and we begin practicing, but there's not, things are not very clear, right? 
and we get tangled up in what is not clear. And it's very difficult to have a sense. I mean, we, we can say, I'm on the path. We can talk about what the Eightfold Path describes. You know, I'm, I'm in session. I'm, but it's hard to actually have that perspective of what is actually going on. We're in training. We're given teachings. We follow those instructions. We engage in practices. And we do have some sense. We need to have some sense. But there's so much that we have to take on faith. We have to trust. And that as things become clear in a moment, all that has not, things that have not been clear, the fact that of what this path is, of what, in a sense, we have been doing in our delusion, in our practice, in moments of confusion, in moments of hopelessness, we now see them in a very different way. And we can now see them as rather than, you know, mistakes or proof that we're no good or however we might have framed it. We now see it. We can see it as, I think, of almost an inexorably straight path. Even though in the midst of it, sometimes it can seem anything but. And how things were working together. And how in moments that were difficult, and it was only difficult, right? it's hard to see what else was going on. So even during Sashin, during Rahatsu, in long hours of sitting, short hours of sleeping, the body is reacting. Attention comes and goes. We keep having, and so what do we have to do? So we can be very focused on just trying to do our practice, right? And that can be, you know, we can be having all kinds of experiences or challenges with that. But at the same time, what's happening is we're drawing on faith, we're persevering, we're practicing some degree of patience. Yeah, some. We have courage. All of these excellent qualities, wonderful qualities that you can't fake. And you can't just say, okay, I'm going to get some of that. In a way, they have to be earned. We have to, I mean, it's not quite the right way of putting it. Because it's all within us, the potential is all within us. But we have to actually bring that forth. We have to discover that and make it alive and real and it's in those moments where it's needed. And, and, and much of the time when we're struggling, we don't see that happening, right? Because it's not like, you know, the patient's delivery person shows up and gives you a package of it, right? So there's a sense of not being patient or not persevering because I'm struggling. And if I had all those wonderful qualities and this mess would like clean itself up. Who of us would be fully able to face our own mind, our karma, the world, if we did not have faith in liberation? I mean, raising bodhicitta would be like a fool's errand if we didn't possess the wisdom and virtues of the enlightened ones. 
I'm going to practice because the Buddha was enlightened. He has it. I don't. I'm never going to realize it, but I'm just going to practice anyway. A Japanese uh, Zen master, Tsugen Narasaki Roshi, who was the uh, abbot of uh, Zuyoji, which is a famous old temple monastery in Japan, talked about the Zendo as different names, the Sodo, a dojo. And Narasaki Roshi said, since ancient times, the, the Zen, uh, Zendo has also been called the Sorin, which is in Japanese means thicket. This is because the practice of the monks or the practitioners is like trees and grass growing together in peace and harmony. In the Zendo, newcomers and seniors, young and old, help each other to practice and develop as they live together, doing Zazen, receiving the teachings, working with ongoing effort. In this way, they can be likened to milk, smoothly blending with water. They don't neglect practice. This attitude exemplifies the essence of the way of the life of a temple, of a monastery. Both sitting and lying down, we must act in accord with other, each other. The same can also be said of many actions. So long as we are alive, we should lead a pure life in the training hall. Grasses and trees blending together. Practicing together in peace and harmony. You know, many people, many, many people, God bless them, live good lives, want to do right by others, want to be fair, and so on. And thank goodness for every one of them. In Buddha Dharma, that good path is seen as inevitably a, an ongoing journey and negotiation of those grasses and trees, of brambles and boulders, until we see for ourselves that the basis of every conflict, every argument, every disagreement, every aggression, every false view arises from a grasping mind. It's that simple and it's that challenging. And that all of those things, every blessed thing is without any intrinsic existence. It comes and goes moment by moment. The mind seamlessly seems to stitch it all together in continuity so we can make sense of our lives. And so practicing together to blend not just milk and water, but anger and compassion, greed and generosity, impatience and patience, highs and lows. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Buddha says, how wonderful it is How wonderful that all beings are endowed with the eye of wisdom, the enlightened ones, yet in their, in their folly and delusion, they don't know it. I should teach them the right path to make them abandon illusion and attachment forever so that they can perceive the vast wisdom of the enlightened ones within their own bodies and be no different from the Buddhas. 
and realize that we are no different from the Buddhas. And so it is, but because of false conceptions and attachments, we don't realize it. Which shows the strength, the power, the depth of those false conceptions and attachments. I came across a poem recently by Joy Harjo, who is a a, uh, past uh, U.S. Poet Laureate of the Muscogee Nation. And she wrote a very short poem. She had some horses she loved. She had some horses she hated. These were the same horses. (laughs) Brilliant. I mean, I thought, if we ever get visited by beings from another world who just want to know, just give me a sense of what you're about. (laughs) You could just write this on a postage stamp or a post-it note and just give it to them. But that's not quite fair, because that's not all we are. And so an old master said, sometimes beings contain, sentient beings rather, all sentient beings contain natural virtues as their substance and have the ocean of knowledge as their source. But when forms change, the body differs. When feelings arise, knowledge is blocked. Now, to bring about knowledge of mind in unity with the substance, arrival at the source, and the letting go of attachment to feelings, I will discuss this scripture. There's a commentary on the scripture. It's like a person with appearances befitting one full of virtue and wisdom, but who sees themselves as poor and sick and suffering as though in a dream. This is their change of form. They don't see their original body. This is the differing of the body. They take it to be their own body, and this is feelings arise. They don't believe that their own body is beautiful and blessed with good qualities. This is knowledge is blocked. When I spoke earlier about the importance in session of letting go of all concerns, and it's so important to understand letting go. That letting go simply means not grasping. It just means not grasping. And so when we let go, we not, don't grasp at our concerns, the things that tend to occupy our mind and our attention and our energy, the things we care about, the things we give our attention to, the things that we do that fill so much of our day and take a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy, a lot of emotional energy, that there be a time where we can come, having taken care of all of that, I'm going to step away and not be concerned about those concerns. That's what's important. That if if we, in coming to Seshin, life isn't in a place where we can do that, then we probably should come at a different time. Because otherwise, it's, it's not going to feel right to let go of them because we haven't, in a sense, left them in a place where we can do that. So that it's not neglect. It's not ignoring. So that in that trust, we can truly let go and know that everything will be there when we emerge. 
so that on this seat we can sit in this solitude, in this silence, inclusive, solitary, this seat of miraculous awareness, and turn your natural mind inward. And as forms and sensations come and go, to not have your knowledge blocked, not have your wisdom dimmed, to see them as they are. I was reading, I've been reading again the um, Prajnaparamita Sutra in 8,000 lines. It's such an amazing text. And I mean, to really appreciate, we've studied this before, to appreciate this whole body of teachings. Some have said that it's one of the most important um, bodies of religious or spiritual literature in the world because it encompasses all of these different sutras. The Diamond Sutra, the Heart Sutra, 8,000 lines, 10,000 lines, all of these different sutras with this essential teaching about Prajnaparamita. But in this sutra, and for those who are interested who want to do a little bit more research in Mara, this is your this is your book. This is your text. There's page after page talking about Mara in all the different ways that it arrives. But here, and here's another one. Here, the Buddha says, Mara may come to the Bodhisattva and exhort and inform them in connection with the quality of detachment that the Tathagata, the Buddha, has praised. And that that means, so, so the Mara will come and praise and, and encourage you in the practice of detachment, which the Buddha has said is so important to cultivate a mind of detachment. But Mara says, and what that means is that you should go and dwell in a remote forest, in a jungle, in a mountain cleft, in a burial ground. That's what detachment means. And the Buddha says, but that is not what I teach. That is not what I mean by detachment. That one should go and live in isolation. And so Subhuti says, well, if that's not detachment for the Bodhisattva, what is? And the Buddha says, a Bodhisattva dwells detached when they become detached from the mental activities associated with self-serving, self-clinging practice a practice that is only concerned for oneself. For if the bodhisattva is taken hold of by perfection of wisdom and skillful means, that is, that they're really engaging wholeheartedly, taking refuge in the wisdom of the Buddha and are skillful in, in our practice, and if they dwell in the dwelling of friendliness and of great compassion towards all beings, then they dwell detached, even when they dwell in the neighborhood of a village. If a bodhisattva dwells in this dwelling, while they live in a remote dwelling place, in a remote forest, in a jungle, then they dwell detached in a true way. In other words, it's not about the place. It's about <clears throat> falsely isolating oneself <clears throat> in one's mind and reducing this all-inclusive, all-embracing mind and wisdom to oneself. 
But that is not detachment. And that's so important because <clears throat> detachment is one of those things that we can think of as being distant, aloof, cold, not caring. So the Buddha's here is making it very clear. Because of false conception and attachments, we do not realize it. So we all, <laughs> you know, sometimes people come into practice or to residency, for instance, they say, I have no expectations. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we all have our mind. Part of what our mind does, a huge part of our mind, is that it conceives. It creates, I mean, magic. We create a mental image in our mind. Maybe we've seen it before, maybe we've never seen it before. And we don't just create the mental image, but it brings forth feelings, sensations, emotions, desires. It might inspire us. It might move us. And so we form ideas and beliefs and attitudes. And we form the ones that make sense to us. I mean, how does that happen? Well, we're in an ocean of other people who have formed ideas and beliefs and conceptions that seem to make sense to them. They're our teachers. They're our parents. They're our mentors. They're the ones who are supposed to be telling us what the hell is going on. And so we sift through them absorb them, take them on, make them our own, reject some, which means we take on those in a different way. Some of those are going to be skillful, some won't. Some will hold lightly, some not. Some we're invested in, some not so much. And there are false conceptions that are false because they don't accord with reality. They just, they're not true. They're deceptions. And there are false conceptions that do accord with everyday reality. They're true, but they're false because we project an inherent sense of truth into them. That their trueness exists in and of itself, in the thought, in the idea, in the conception. And then we become attached to them. And we go to war over such things. You know, it's like, you know, if you smoke, like if you ever, when you were young, or maybe not so young, tried to smoke cigarettes, right? The first time you smoke a cigarette, what does the body do? What the? <laughs> right? Like, what are you doing? Right? It's not natural. The body tries to reject it, but if you keep doing it, the body says, okay, right? We'll do this, right? Because it can get used, we get used to anything, right? That's part of our genius. We cannot accommodate, we acclimate. And then it becomes natural. And then if we try and stop, that ain't natural. That's not happening. The body says, no, no. I said no in the beginning, but now I say no to this. You cannot stop this. Delusion's kind of like that. Right? It becomes integrated. It becomes apparently natural in the sense that I don't have to think about it. I don't have to invoke it. I don't have to decide, I'm going to get angry when you say that. Anger just arises. 
It seems natural. And when we try and release it, give it up, right? There's rebellion. There's resistance of a tall order in proportion to how important it is to us. The more important it is, the more invested, the more tightly we've hold, held it, the more integrated it is, it, it is into our sense of self. We're not letting this go. That's Mara. And so when we really understand that, it makes sense that it's difficult. We realize it's not realistic to think I could just come in because I've accomplished other things in my life that I've set my mind to. I'm going to set my mind to this and I'm going to get what I want. That's just not the way it goes. <laughs> and in that way, it's less personal, right? It's not like, why do I keep... Uh, it's like, yeah, it makes sense that this is happening. And so then the question is, well, why do the absolutely banal, trivial, superficial things keep coming with force. Habit, familiarity, frequency, comfort. Something doesn't have to be meaningful for it to be a, a familiar place. And that's why we need to as a teacher, you say, raise bodhicitta, that great aspiration. And as I've said earlier, when we are challenged, that gets challenged. Right? When everything's going fine, you can have a sense of why you're doing this. It may be clear, it may be not clear. Who cares? Right? Because it's going along nicely. Right? You're enjoying this. But then, boom. Now what? What are you doing on this seat? We need to know. We need to be clear. And when we're not clear, have some faith. Persevere. Think back. You don't even have to think back. Just think around. Think around you. There are people right now experiencing the same thing. There are people who, a few minutes ago, were in exactly that same spot, and now they've come to a clearer space. Ratsu is a sacred forest of enlightenment and delusion, of living and dying, so that we can see through our false conceptions and attachments. That's why it takes time. That's why we have to stay on this seat and not turn away, so we can see. Because we can't see it at a glance. We just don't. And we, we don't, it's not enough generally to just see it once. We have to see it again and again and again, and again, and again. The distance of samsara seems to be a buffer, seems to be a kind of anesthetic, and it is. But it's like, you know, you're going to get operated on, they're just going to like take out a little something, right? They only need this, this area, but they're going to put the whole system to sleep so you're more comfortable. That's kind of what happens. The whole system goes to sleep so that we can endure the pain. We're not quite sure how to endure it and what is it and why is it and how do we understand it and how do we be skillful and do we have the virtues necessary? 
And so we have to come out of our anesthetized state. Right? And it's, we're a little groggy when we do that. And then suddenly what happens? Ouch. Ooh. Right? You feel that pain more. And so the tendency is, give me some more of that stuff. Right? Make this go away. And so the distance of samsara seems to obscure or distance the pain, but it really only delays it. Intimacy doesn't increase the pain. Well, in a way it does. Let's just say it honestly. (laughs) Because it's not pain if we're not feeling it. Right? I mean, we can say it's there beneath the surface. The source is there. All the structures are there. But it's not there until it's there. And so intimacy does, in a sense, increase it. And what that, that feeling, that's the feeling of healing. That's the feeling of coming back to life. I've told this story before about a student, one of our students at Greenhaven, <clears throat> many, many years ago. And he was telling me, we were doing a Zazen game, he was telling me that he'd, he sort of gave me the list of all the different prisons he'd been in, and some of the toughest, worst places in the state. And he said, I've seen pretty much everything. He said, you just get used to it, you see it, you kind of don't see it, you just keep going. And he said, one day he was in the yard, and all the guys were out there doing stuff, and somebody got stabbed. And the sirens went off, and the guards came in, you know, it's, and he said, I've seen this a hundred times before, a thousand times before. He said, but this time was different. And he said, I just thought, I realized we're all caught in this thing. The guy who was stabbed, the guys who stabbed him, the guards, all of us, we are all caught in this thing. We are all trapped in these walls. And then he looked at me with his big eyes and he says, what's happening to me? And he meant it. He was scared. I said, welcome back. And that's no small part of the courage, that, of the in, intrepidness that we need. Intrepidity? Of being intrepid, of being, having the capacity. We have the capacity, but seeing, demonstrating our capacity to experience whatever arises and to experience it without falling back in to aversion, without falling back in to grasping, without falling back in to sleep. And so, yeah, it does actually get harder a little bit. And the teachings tell us, and all of the reports of all those who have come before us tell us, that that's the path. That suffering is actually an essential aspect of the path because this is not an abstraction. We're not theoretically alleviating suffering. We're not doing it at a distance. And we're not, in doing it for others, we have to do it for ourselves. Sky covers, earth bears, making a mess, making a clump, 
pervading the universe without bound, breaking down subatomic particles with no insight. This is just Hongzhi's way of saying, hello, <laughs> I recognize you. This is how I might describe you in this particular moment. Sky covers, earth bears, pervading the universe without bound, examining down to the smallest part, the subtlest aspect. Is there anything to hold on to? Is there anything that actually defines you? Is there anything that holds us in? The footnote says, even the Buddha's eye can't see it. Getting to the end of the mysterious subtlety, who distinguishes turning towards and away? Buddhas and ancestors come to pay the debt for what they say and for what they've received. Right? In a sense, that's what, <laughs> you know, in the beginning, it's like, give me. You know, I, I've come, I want to receive, I want to receive, I need to receive. I need the teachings, I need instruction, I need help. And then there's a point at which that's still true, but it's changing, and now it's starting to turn around. Now it's repaying the debt. But you know what? That actually starts at the very beginning. Right? The reason we can do this is because we do it. That's how it's possible. And because those who we might have left at home or at work, filling in the gaps, because the earth is supplying us with the four elements, because we have a relative amount of peace, all of the conditions necessary. They're vast. And so there is quite a debt. How wonderful that we can spend the rest of our lives repaying that debt. So we can get to the place where there is no more turning away, nowhere to escape, the footnote says. <clears throat> That's the good news, right? <laughs> I mean, think about it. If you have an actual escape, don't you think you're going to use it? Don't you think there'll be a point where it's like, yep, I'm taking it. <laughs> I mean, there were plenty of times where I had such thoughts. And as I sat there thinking about, you know, making my plan for my escape too, you know, which was really just like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I got that stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I would think, okay, so what's your plan? <laughs> right? Got to have a plan. So it's like, where are you going to go? Smart guy. And I realized, I really don't have anywhere to go. And not because I was a monk, but because I realized wherever I go is the same thing. So just get back to work. Just get back to it. Just get back to it. Start over. How do we arrive at this place? It's said over and over and over again, you are already the one, fully possessing this wisdom and virtues of the enlightened ones. So we need to release our grasp 
again and again, more deeply, more completely. What does that mean? You find out. How do you do that when it doesn't seem possible? You find out. How do you draw upon what's necessary when you don't feel like you have it? You find out. And when you have no escape, you know what? You will. You will. Because that's what we're made of. That's what human beings are made of. That's what Buddhas are made of. So know that you are the one that you're seeking, but have no idea about this one. Free yourself of that. Don't look for them to appear. Just give up turning towards and away. Let your very seat bear the sky, bear the earth and cover the sky. One day, Nanquan and Shishan were picking ferns for vegetables to eat. And Nanquan picked up a stalk and said, this is a fine offering. And Shishan said, the Buddha wouldn't take notice of such a feast, even if you had a hundred thousand of them, let alone this one. Nanquan said, even so, everyone should taste it. Everyone should taste it. So this time that we're in, in this Ratsu, is, is actually very, very important. It's precipitous. It's potent. And so let's really be diligent and bring forth those qualities that we have, that you have, that you have, and trust. And whatever comes as we're just practicing simply, I mean, what are we doing? Not much. <laughs> really. Right? Don't even try and explain to someone outside of this why this is so <laughs> difficult. They're going to be like, I don't think so. Through all of those ups and downs, right? Those are the worlds, the worlds that appear and disappear and arise and fall and that we live for and we die over. Let them pass. Let them pass. Let them pass. That is your seasoning. That is your maturing. That is our realization. Oh, all things are impermanent. And as Dogen says, don't take things too lightly, but don't give them more weight than they're due. Excellent advice. And in that way, we will bring this year of practice, this life of practice, really, to a worthy time. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.